Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is November the 1st, 2019, and we are all the way up to episode 2543 of the Survival Podcast. It is Friday, 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 and it's also the week before a week of rewinds because next week... I will be spending time with about 60 awesome people from the Survival Podcast community as we experience what will become known as a day that will live in infamy. Actually, a week that will live in infamy. TSP 19, yes, at Nine Mile Farm, my home abode. Uh, so that's going to be going on next week. So there's just no way I can actually do episodes. I have all the episodes for the Rewind selected. I've got some really... I got some deep stuff and I got some fun stuff. And I think you'll enjoy next week of Rewinds. Not all of the shows that I've selected, but some of the shows go all the way back to like 2000 and, uh, 2010. I think I have like the fifth and ninth show that were done after I took the podcast full time queued up for you guys next week and some other really cool stuff. So even though it will be a week of rewinds, they will be fun, enjoyable rewinds. I think a lot of you guys actually really dig the rewinds. Um, you know, if you like to watch really good TV shows, sometimes it's fun to go back and watch the earlier episodes. So kind of be like that. Also, what's going on today? It is November the 1st. There are only two months left to 2019, and we will move on to the uh, circus music that will be Ask Clown Circus 2020. The President of the United States is now officially being inquired about impeachment. Uh, I thought that was going on for, like, two months. Whatever. Like, do you know how much I'm going to pay attention to that over the next two months? <laughs> Not a lot. Not a lot, and you shouldn't either, because it means absolutely the square root of F all nothing. I mean, just come on. Like... What you got now, guys, is you got two months, and 2019, gone like a fart in the wind. The things that you want to get done before next year, you got two months to get them done, and you got Thanksgiving, and you got Christmas in there, right? So that means tick-tock, tick-tock, the clock ticks for us all. You know, you could say, like, it's coasting, and there is some coasting in this time of year. I mean, I'm telling you, once I hit Thanksgiving, I am in... Uh, Low speed mode on some things, but I'm still getting things done in my life. Because when you're down to the last 60 days of your life, they're all going to be precious. Live them that way now. Good words to think about as we launch into this episode. What do I got for you today? Um, Doc Kelly's going to talk to us about keeping our kitty cats in good urinary health. Uh, it's not something we think about until we need to. And there ain't nothing like a cat with bad urinary problems to make you wish you didn't own one. I'm just saying. Uh, we're going to talk about backup power on the cheap with Stephen, Electric Avenue Harris. We're going to have moving investments to tax-deferred status and investing apps with John Pugliano. More on the environmental crisis that is modern-day Florida. I actually am really encouraged that I got this call from Jeff Lawton. Um, I have had like not a lot of calls for Jeff lately. So I sent out a thing with some of the people, including Jeff, like, just tell us what's going on. Like, you don't have to have a question to, to do a segment. And Jeff just happened to be last week in the state of Florida. I wish you would have told me that because I would have had him out here busting stripers and sand bass because he likes to fish. He was out there busting amberjacks. But 
a while ago, about a year and a half, maybe two years ago, I asked Jeff to weigh in on the problems in Florida with the red tide. And he gave a very short answer. And I think the lesson here is in what people assume about a situation, even very, very smart people who are, you know, like Jeff is one of my greatest mentors in the world. But when he gave me the answer on how to fix the problems in Florida, I was like, this is so oversimplified and so not really understanding the problem. But I also thought, well, Jeff Lawton's in Australia, and Florida is a long way from Australia. Well, Jeff ended up in Florida and started taking a look around, and he has some really interesting commentary on just the sickness that we're creating for ourselves in the environment and in our bodies in looking around at Florida and things that a lot of people look at and go, oh, isn't that nice? Oh, isn't that nice? No, it's not. And um, hopefully that we, we come away from what he has to say is, well, yeah, this is really bad, but there are solutions. That's the beauty that sooner or later, if we ever decide we actually want to fix shit, there are ways to do it. It might be, in his words, a bit uphill, but it's totally doable. Derek Don Pietro, Derek Don, Derek Bon Pietro is going to talk to you about tire pressure. Yeah, I know it sounds boring, but it's actually really important and why you shouldn't always just do what the tire tells you to. The tire doesn't know what you're going to ask the tire to do or what kind of vehicle you're going to put it on. So just because the tire says, inflate me to X PSI, doesn't mean that's the right tire pressure. You shouldn't inflate it to more, but you might, should, could, maybe, depending on the application, inflate it to less. J.R. Haley is going to talk to us about long-range shooting and altering the length of pull on your long guns. And I got a question from somebody who said, Jack, what the hell would have to happen for you ever to be okay with precious metal ETFs? And I emailed him back a short answer, but I'm going to give a better answer today, going, I don't have a problem with precious metal ETFs. I just think they're a tool. And tools should be used, right tool for the right job. I don't put a screw into a board with the hammer. I use a screwdriver, more accurately, a screwdriver bit into an uh, impact driver, because that's a lot easier than turning it by hand. I do not dig a hole, you know, with a toothpick. And I do not pick my teeth with a shovel. This is not make sense. So the ETF, when it comes to precious metals, is a actually a very good tool. But it is often used, well, quite improperly. And we will talk about the right way to use an ETF and the right way to use physical gold and silver in your investment and retirement planning. All of that and more in just a moment. Before we do that, I have a quote of the day for you guys today. Quote of the day is from one of my favorite people, people uh, of all time, R. Buckminster Fuller. This is a guy that I think should have... Um, if, if we actually cared about educating our youth, if we actually cared about an education meaning something, uh, there would be universities with Buckminster Fuller buildings. In health buildings, there would be wings. There would be entire college curriculum based on Buckminster Fuller um, and his his thoughts and the work that he did um, instead of the bullshit that we have today. There really would. Of course, you know what they say, no one's going to give you the tools to overthrow them, right? No one, in, no one in power will ever give you the tools to overthrow them uh, because we're not going to talk about this quote today, but, but one of Buckminster's other quotes, which is probably why we don't have the Buckminster Fuller wing of any university anywhere, is... The last move in politics is always to pick up a gun. 
So that tells you why maybe this man is not as renowned as he should be um, when it comes from people in authority, but why maybe you should pay attention on your own. But this is what he said about the future, and I really want you to think about this when you hear Jeff Lawton's segment today. We are called to be architects of the future, not its victims. We are called to be architects of the future, not its victims. Now here's the thing. There, people use the truth to sell a lie. There are a lot of things that are being pushed in this world that are about, oh, think of the children, which is always think of the future, and we're supposed to change the future. And we're supposed to do that through force and coercion of government and political policy. The best way to be an architect of the future is to look right outside your window, within your, your, your circle of control, and ask, what thing can I do, me, myself and I, not yell at somebody else they should do? to make the future just a little bit better. Good way to kick off with thoughts on a Friday. Now, let's go ahead and hear from Dot Kelly on keeping our kitties happy and healthy when it comes to their ability to pee. <laughs> Dot Kelly, take it away. Hi, Jack and all TSP listeners. This is Dr. Kelly here to answer your furry pet questions. Today's question is from PA Prepper and says, Do you have an herbal supplement recommendation for cats' urinary health? or any suggestions to maintain urinary feline health in general. Okay, there's a couple things that we've got to talk about um, with feline urinary health. Unfortunately, there's not really an herbal supplement that's going to be a slam dunk for helping take care of these cats' urinary tracts. The biggest thing that we can do to help prevent any problems is to get cats eating a high-protein canned food diet and trying to help increase their fluid intake. Cats are little desert animals, and they never want to drink as much water as we really want them to. Um, so any extra moisture that you can get, whether through canned food or extra um, water added in, can really help these guys. Now, if you have a little dry food addict that just does not want to eat the canned food, some of them you can convert over to wanting the dry over time. I mean, wanting the canned food over time, and so they get... You can get them used to it. Others, it's a total no-go, and it's not going to happen. So there's some things that you can try to help get those dry food addict cats eating, drinking more fluids, basically. You can add water to the dry food, and some cats will accept that. Some will totally snub that suggestion. But you can try adding water to it, adding water to it, and see how much they'll actually take. Um, it's worth a shot. The other is you can give them separate treats of low-sodium chicken broth that doesn't have other additives. Cats can't have um, garlic or onions, so you really want to make sure that those are not in the broth. Um, but you can try that if they like those kind of things. You can try tuna juice, even just putting water in more creative locations. Like if they always like to drink out of the sink, you can leave a little bit in the bottom of the sink. You can leave a small dish under a dripping faucet. You know, just little things to try and get them to encourage them to drink more frequently. Um, some cats like ice cubes in there, some don't, just anything that makes it interesting. You can also make extra tuna broth and freeze it by taking a can of tuna and you boil it in two cups of water for about 10 minutes and then strain the contents to just get the liquid and put it into ice cube trays to freeze for just to pop out and melt for these guys um, whenever you need them. And you can offer the tuna even as treats after you've drained out the water. Um, but just don't hold me responsible for what your kitchen might smell like after this little experiment. But, um, but some cats really like that. And so it's a nice way that you can just pop out one or two and be able to melt them when you need them. 
Now, if you're trying to get all this extra water in your cat and you're still having trouble, there's three th- main things that when people talk about feline urinary health that they tend to be talking about. There's your true bacterial urinary tract infections, and these are rare in younger cats. They're much more common in older cats that have dilute urine due to things like kidney failure. If a cat has diabetes and they're diluting their urine out because they're drinking a lot of water, those guys are much more susceptible to a bacterial infection. And really, the best thing other than diluting it out is just helping take care of those other disease processes that are going on to try and minimize that risk. Now, cats can form bladder stones, and that can be a real big problem for these guys. It's uncomfortable, for one. It'll also make them pee blood. And for some cats, if they've already been on a canned food diet and they were still forming these things, sometimes after stone removal, some stones can be dissolved with certain foods, um, but not all of them, unfortunately. So these guys, once they've had treatment for it and had surgery or something, then sometimes they need to be on a prescription diet just to help maintain that pH at just the right level so that they're not forming stones based on either side of that nice neutral pH zone. The third thing is a stress cystitis, which can happen... Making the cats pee blood, often it's that there's other stressors going on. The bladder kind of gets caught in the crossfire, and so they end up with this really inflamed bladder. They're peeing blood. It hurts and that sort of thing. Now, these guys... Adding extra fluids in definitely helps and being on the canned food. But for some of them, it's also a real mental game and trying to figure out what it is that's stressing them and giving them other activities to do in the house, you know, leaving the Amazon box out for them, leaving bags without handles so they can get in and out, just different things, having lots of high places to escape away from kids or dogs or other cats. Any of those things can um, help those guys out and to really look at what's making their lives stressful, which can sometimes, we would think, how are they stressed? They sleep all the time. But, you know, there are things that will stress these little guys out and make things worse. So um, if having them on the high-protein canned food is not working or is causing problems, definitely talk to your vet about some of the prescription ones. Those sometimes can help these guys to really um, prevent further problems. And this is especially true for male cats. I really worry about them a lot more with these problems because... Just by the way they're designed, their urethras are teeny tiny, and it does not take a whole lot of um, a blood clot, a tiny stone even, or some mucus to plug up that urethra, and then these guys can't pee. And that's really, really bad. And anyone who's ever had to hold it while in traffic knows this is not a good situation. So with those guys, it's really important if you hear a cat in the litter box and you hear them crying or making sounds and you're un, you can tell that they're uncomfortable when they're trying to go or if they're starting to go and straining in lots of little places and only a drop or two is coming out. It's really, for male cats especially, it's an emergency to get it checked out and make sure that their bladder isn't, that they re- isn't too full, that they really can urinate. Unfortunately, I've seen uh, more than one of these guys where owners didn't notice for several days. And by that point, the kidneys were really shot. And so it was a bad situation. So if you see any of that kind of uncomfortable behavior in the litter box, definitely let your vet know um, so you guys can see if there's something that more extreme that needs to be done immediately. Um, and But for a lot of these guys, if you can get them to eating the canned food, even as kittens, um, I really recommend people, even if the, they don't plan on feeding canned food exclusively to cats as they grow up, that when these guys are kittens and occasionally throughout their life, you offer a variety of different canned foods in both pate, the sliced, all those different flavor kind of things, because... 
cats, if they aren't exposed to it as a kitten, they're really not going to be too thrilled about eating it when they're older. So they need to have those different textures and types of food to really um, be okay and comfortable with eating it and then still experience it occasionally, even if you do it as a once a week treat thing, so that if at some point these guys need to be on it, they're much more willing to accept it. So that's my quick synopsis on feline urinary health. And remember all, while I'm a veterinarian, I'm not your veterinarian, so my advice is just intended to be a ballpark estimate of what your vet may tell you. I hope everyone has a great week, and thanks, Jack. Bye. Like so many things when it comes to health, the keystone seems to be diet there. And I've often thought with cats, you know, this crazy idea that I have as a guy like, you know, me, It says, well, what do cats eat? What do cats eat? People say, well, they eat cat food. No, 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 no. What do cats eat if they don't have a human being to go get in a metal coffin and drive the metal coffin to the grocery store and procure cat food with giant, you know, Dr. Evil air quotes around it, bring it home and open it up and put it into their, their bowl for them if a cat goes out into the wild and survives. And trust me, I can tell you from my own cats, they are survivors. What do they eat? They eat basically little birds and little rodents. And I was like, I wonder where we can get little birds and little rodents. And then I remember you used to keep snakes. And I thought maybe it might not be a crazy idea that maybe the best thing to feed cats would be like to go to like Rodent Pro or Mice on Ice, which sell like pre-killed frozen baby chicks and baby um, uh, mice and rats and big rats and big mice and all that and buy the same thing we would feed a snake and like maybe while it's even frozen like have a dedicated low-end grinder and just throw the whole thing through a grinder and make cat food that way brains head bones everything just like they eat in the wild i wonder if we fed our animals that way how many of our animal health problems would go away and i know people are like oh my god Understand, these are rodents and chicks that are designed to be fed to animals, just in this case snakes and large lizards and things like that. So maybe, maybe it's not such a crazy idea. I'm not saying to do it, but I'm saying maybe it's not such a crazy idea. Next up, Stephen Harris. All these people in California are dealing without power, you know? They're having to run extension cords to, like, Nevada to get egg electricity. What can they do on the cheap, because you can't afford anything in California, to take care of power needs while the power's being shut out so the power lines don't make more fires when the power lines get burned down by the fire that must already be to the power lines when the fire burned the power line. Uh, you know what I mean. Uh, Steve, take it away. Hi, this is Steve Harris calling in to overmodulate my microphone. Sorry, I've been gone for a few weeks. I had laptop problems and I had to migrate laptops, get a new laptop, <clears throat> caught a cold and had, oh, lots of things going on. But I had no end of people writing to me about the California power outages where the government is turning off the power to the power line so they don't start a wildfire. A very good friend of mine and a senior person in Cal Fire who has taken the stuff I have taught all of you through Jack and he's used it to the extreme with during fires and deployments for the last many years. <coughs> you know, other people have he's working with have dead phones. He's got his 50 cal ammo box with Harris stuff in it. He charges their phones for them and they go, gee, how did you learn about that? 
So anyways, he calls and writes Jack and me and says, Steve, challenge you to make a kit, you know, as cheap as possible that will allow people to have basic necessities of electricity during the power failure in California because California is shutting off the power. And basically, you can go to Walmart, okay? They got 100, 200, 400, sorry, 200, 400, and 750 watt inverters for $10, $20, and $40. 750 watt inverter is enough to run your refrigerator, which takes between 120 and 200 watts, unless the defrost cycle comes on for two minutes to defrost the refrigerator, and then that might overload your inverter because it takes about 600 watts for two minutes, and you can't control it. Basically, you want to power your house from your car? It's one of the best things I have ever done in my life is create the How to Power Your House from Your Car class uh, podcast with Jack Spierko. It's at Stephen1234.com. Go listen to it. I'm sorry it's an hour long, okay? You have to learn some details and some figures and some numbers. This is not a 10-minute, you know, for the idiots on YouTube type of thing. You gotta go learn something, you gotta go buy it, you gotta go try it, and you gotta go use it, and you gotta know it before there's a disaster, and then you can use it in a disaster. So please go do it. Someone wrote to Jack and I and said, hey, if I put two 800 watt inverters on my car battery, can I have 1600 watts of power? Yes, you can for about 15 minutes and then your car battery is going to die. The alternator puts out basically about 400 watts on a continuous basis at idle. Some more, some left. I don't give a crap if it says it's a 200 watt alternator. That's at 8,000 RPMs. Your car is sitting there at idle. It's not outputting the full amount. Go listen to the class, Stephen1234.com. Stop making excuses and just go do it. Jack called this a double-edged lightsaber. <laughs> so, um, the same guy from Cal Fire called me personally. This is really a guy that cares, okay? And he is a TSP listener. And he just can't get enough knowledge. He can't absorb enough. He can't do enough. He can't help enough. He is the epitome of a man who is wearing a badge and a uniform, who raised his hand and took an oath to run into a building, a burning building to save a life. He begged me to, like, call some radio stations. There was two million people without power. Steve, call these radio stations. Tell them what you can do. Offer to do a segment. Offer to do it every day. Just get them to talk to you. Help the people. He told me the three big radio stations in the area, because I don't know California. I don't want to know California. And I called them all. I called the newsroom. I used every bit of persuasion that you hear in my voice to talk to them sanely and calmly and professionally. And I explained it to them briefly and distinctly and succinctly what I do and what I can do. Then I left voicemails. Then I wrote emails for them. Succinct, distinct, to the point. You know how much interest there was? Zero. Okay, we've already had people die in California from breathing problems because their oxygen concentrator runs on electricity and they have COPD or emphysema or some other lung ailment or they have to run a nebulizer and have a treatment every night and they don't have power. They can't run their nebulizer or they have a CPAP machine and they can't really sleep without a CPAP machine. 
And this is all, most of this can be solved in one degree or another by an inverter on a car with the car at idle or off of the car battery and starting the car every few hours. Anyways, you want the details on how to know that? Go get the class. Steven1234.com. The other thing is I checked with the data feeds and social media of CAC team, Team Rubicon, which is a big nationwide disaster relief team that uses veterans, the Red Cross, two million people without power. People who are medically dependent on power are suffering, and they're not doing crap. I'd like to use stronger language, but they're not doing crap. Nothing. None of them. So what? Guess what? It's up to you. Yeah, you. Sitting there listening to this, whether you're in California or you have a problem where you are in six months and you have neighbors, it's up to you who listen to my class, who learn things from Jack, who has done this stuff. It is up to you. Without any organization or anything else or 5013C or badger uniform to put your butt into your car because you got stored fuel in your garage because I taught you how to do it in the fuel and fuel storage class at uh, Stephen1234.com or you listen to Jack and his fantastic method of using six or 12 five gallon cans of gasoline in your garage and rotating them on a regular basis to keep them fresh. It is up to you to go find the problem, to talk to the neighbors, see if someone is they know around you that is medically dependent upon something. It is up to you to have some spare inverters. Get them on Facebook Marketplace for a little bit nothing. Get them at Walmart get them on sale get stuff that i call is for my neighbors okay coleman lanterns 10 bucks fix them up what is for for my neighbors it's coleman stove you know extra toilet paper bottles of water which i just posted on the tsb facebook forum how to do that and it's in my water class at steven1234.com it is up to you to go find those who are in need. It is up to you to help your fellow fellow brethren. And because you can, I mean, one person with inverters, like, hey, buddy, uh, yeah, I heard you have CPAP. Yeah, huh? Yeah, it's not too hot, not too cold. You got some water? Yeah, yeah. Well, let me show you how to use this inverter. You can borrow it. You can use your car here. Just make sure you might have to drive 15, 20 minutes to fill the thing up with gas. But that's certainly better better than having no power. At least now with a little 200-watt inverter, he can run his CPAP. He can charge his phone. You know, get some internet on there, find the latest news, whatever. You know, it makes everything that was useless become useful again. No, he's not going to run his air conditioning. No, he's not going to run his refrigerator off a 200 watt. But if the guy can sleep, it's a big thing. It's up to you to go and help your fellow people because no one else is. And if you don't go help them, they're going to suffer. This unmitigated disaster that is California is absolutely incredible. Allowing people to sue the power company that is providing our very existence the way we can live our life, suing them out of business because the fire started by Mother Nature and the wind and the mismanagement of the forest by California. Not allowing for forest management due to environmental, political regulations and everything else. And now they have whole, wonderful, abundant, huge fires. And 
which are a yearly occurrence, and of course they blame it on man-made global warming, the fallacy of man-made global warming. Rather than cleaning up their mess and helping their people, they just shut the power off. Thank you, that's what the government's going to do for you. Whatever it is, they're just going to turn it off. So please, go listen to my classes at Stephen1234.com. They are free. You don't even need to sign up for them. Listen to the stuff I've done with Jack. And please, go help your fellow person. And if I can be of any assistance, you have any questions, email me. I'll help. Stephen1234.com. Thank you. You don't have to join any group. You don't have to ask for anyone's permission. Just go help. Even if you just help one person, just go help. Even if you don't find anyone, just go try to help. How dare you? How dare you? How dare you? I still say that Stephen Harris could benefit from a nice, calming indigo strain. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Very, very helpful as always, but he could... I, I worry that one day, like, he's just going to explode. Like, that we're going to have, like, have, like, a freaking full aneurysm uh, in the middle of a segment. And that'll be our last testament to Steve, is an aneurysm in the middle of one of his segments. Anyway, with that, let's talk about investing, if you want something to get your blood pressure up. John Pugliano's going to talk about investing from a standpoint of uh, dealing with having an investment that's done well that you'd like to move into a tax-deferred status, along with potential of using things like investing apps. Hey, TSP listeners. Well, today we've got a couple financial questions I'm going to try and cover for you. The first one is from John in Missouri. He says, I have a number of single stocks and various companies that were given to me and have a low cost basis. And I was wondering if I could transfer them into a tax sheltered growth account without accruing the capital gains from selling them. Well, John, the simple answer is no, you can't. Tax advantage accounts like Roths and IRAs are set up where the contributions have to be made in cash or you know a cash instrument like a check or wire transfer, and that's designed to keep the cost basis clean and avoid exactly what you're talking about, you know the ability to roll over a previous capital gain and have it tax sheltered. So no, that's not something you're allowed to do. It would be you know sort of like buying fire insurance on your house after your house is already burned down. Now, our next question comes from MeWe Chat. I'm not sure who sent this one in, but the question is, what do I think about investing apps like Acorns that make it easy to get started investing? We know there are a variety of apps out there, and these are apps that, if you're not familiar with them, uh, most of them are designed to not only allow you to save money, but they encourage you, or I guess you could even say trick you, into saving by allowing you to round your purchases up. So let's say uh, you know, you're going through Starbucks and you buy your $4 coffee. Some of these apps will allow you to round that number up, you know, 50 cents or a dollar or $2 or whatever you want to do to basically trick you into saving. And then it takes that money, and depending upon what you've chosen to do with it, it'll put it into a savings account or it'll actually invest it in the stock market. I believe Acorns uh, uses exchange-traded funds from Vanguard, so... You know, there's nothing wrong in any of that. Vanguard's an excellent company. I do encourage people to invest in low-cost index funds that are offered by companies like Vanguard. So there's nothing wrong with any of that. There's obviously nothing wrong with saving your nickels and pennies and rounding up and putting all that money away for the future. I don't have any problem with any of that at all. 
It's just that these things are gimmicky like a diet. I mean, imagine if you had an app that every time that you went through McDonald's drive-thru and ordered your Big Mac and fries, there was an app that somehow subtracted, you know, three or four fries from your bag so that those were fries that you didn't eat. And then you're reducing a few calories every day. And so therefore you're going to lose weight. Well, you're probably not going to lose very much weight that way, right? Or if you had another exercise app that counted your steps and at the end of every day, it had you, you know, walk an extra two or three feet before you went to bed at night. Well, are you getting some extra exercise from, you know, walking another few steps before you go to bed every day? Yeah, is that going to help you burn off any calories? Probably not. So the way that I view these saving and investment apps is, you know, they're fine. They're like diet books and books about how to trade stocks or how to make money. I mean, there's plenty of books out there that'll tell you how to lose weight, or there's a lot of books that'll tell you how to invest your money and become a millionaire. The bottom line, though, is when you look around and you talk to people that have read these books, you know, they're still fat and broke. And the reason for that is that there's no simple answer to losing weight or saving money or learning how to invest. Functionally, I don't think there's anything wrong with these apps. Uh, as I mentioned, most of them are using quality exchange-traded funds, things from Vanguard or other companies that they're all above board. They seem to be just fine. Again, where I would caution is it's more about the human nature or the psychology around it where you can't trick yourself into saving money because here's how it usually works. If you've tricked yourself into saving money, let's say you've managed to come up with you know, $500, $1,000, even $10,000. Well, when most people find themselves in that situation, what do they do? Well, look at what they do with other examples. If someone wins the lottery or they get gifted money or they get a bonus or a raise at work, what do they do with that money? They spend it. And so these apps that trick you into saving money, well, if you look at the long-term results of them, they're really no different. People rarely roll that money over into long-term savings. What they generally do is they spend it or they use it to pay off a credit card bill that they then go ahead and run back up again. In fact, if you look, uh, last time I saw a statistic on, I believe it was Robinhood, the average account balance was like right around $100. And you contrast that to a real retirement savings program, something that you'd see at Vanguard or Fidelity or Schwab. Those are places where people are really, honestly, truly saving their money for the long term for retirement, and those account balances are you know, well into the hundreds of thousands of dollars or more. So is there anything wrong with these saving and investing apps? No, there's nothing wrong with them. Probably just not going to do much for you. Hey, think of it in these terms. If you want to have a million or more dollars by the time you retire, all you need to do as a married couple is to simply max out your Roth IRA every year. If you're 30 years old and you and your wife both contribute the maximum amount of $6,000 a piece, that'd be $12,000 a year. If you do that when you're 30 years old and you put that money into some type of an investment, whether it be an S&P 500 index fund or anything that's going to get you at least a very reasonable 6% a year return on your investment over the long run, well, by the time you're 60, you're going to have more than a million dollars. It's that simple, it's that hard, and it's really no different than any other type of healthy lifestyle that you want to take on. It takes time and discipline and effort. There's no one secret way to do something or no hacks or no shortcuts. It all comes down to making a conscious decision to lead a lifestyle that promotes a healthy and a wealthy long-term pattern of behavior. Hey, and speaking of investing, have you seen the stock market lately? Well, we're nearly a third of the way through the fourth quarter. The year's almost over. 
think back over the past previous months and all the gloom and doom you've heard about inverted yield curves and trade wars and tariffs that were slowing down the global economy and the impeachment of the president and the never-ending saga of Brexit and just all the bad things that were built into this stock market and how a recession was just around the corner. And yet, if you look at the S&P 500, you see that it's hovering around less than 1% from an all-time record high. So the best investment advice I can give to anybody is to ignore the headlines, ignore the hype in the media, focus on finding value in your life as well as value in your investments, and those are the things that you want to put your money and your energy into. Oh, sure, along the way, there's going to be ups and downs, but if you're truly pursuing value, then over time, things work out, and you end up healthy, wealthy, and wise. Well, hey, thanks for your questions. For the expert counsel, this is John Pagliano of Investable Wealth and the Wealth Setting Podcast. All right, next up I have probably the premier permaculturist in the world, um, Jeff Lawton, who we are just so fortunate to have as part of this community, uh, discussing some of the problems uh, that exist in the state of Florida from an environmental standpoint. And in some ways I hadn't really thought of before, but I bet you the next time I'm in Florida, which is a state that I dearly love and sure wish would get its shit together, um, I will I will notice. And I'll actually have some thoughts about some places where they they do what Jeff's talking about a hell of a lot closer to the right way. Jeff, what are you seeing on the ground in Florida right now? Hi, Jack. Jeff here. I'm actually sitting in, in a Walmart car park in St. Augustine, Florida. Um, about to teach a workshop tomorrow here. Uh, design. Actually doing a consultancy design live in front of students showing them how to go about it it's gonna be interesting um and i've been poking around here for a few days and uh, caught a nice amberjack and a few fish and had a bit of look around did a consultancy and land here a little bit for someone with 100 120 acres um but um i know you were concerned about florida and uh, having spent a bit of time here i can see why um, and that led me to have a look on Google Earth at uh, a few things. And some that really concerns me are these ornamental lakes that um, are put up everywhere. Um, oh, um, I know the algae bloom is uh, partly responsible to uh, the agriculture, which is pretty damn obvious when you've got nitrogen runoff and everything else, fertilizer runoff and every other biocide runoff. But then when you look at the fact that the, uh, the local governments here or state government um, makes you put in a holding pond if you uh, extend your factory like the job we're doing it's got a nice holding pond little almost like a canal um, because they extended their factory but, but any then when you look on on google earth and look down on places like tampa bay um, you can see that every subdivision what they've done is they've dug out ponds to gain the material for the for the for the houses so that you know the houses and roads are raised up with the excavation from the ponds but then when you look at these ponds they're dead they're absolutely dead in this climate there is no dead ponds ever uh, we're lucky that we have uh, connor hats uh, a very environmental uh, where we're doing this workshop and they they haven't sprayed their pond um, we, we actually got fish in our pond that have arrived on their own and we've got water weed in the pond and we've got reeds on the edge which would always naturally happen no matter what you do but when you look around ponds here I mean I was looking around a large retail outlet the other day 
uh, I won't mention names, but one of the big ones, it's quite a, it's quite, and one that people know is a, a, a bit of a target place as a, re, as a retail outlet. And they had ponds with signs up saying, this is a conservation area, don't walk in here unless you've got permission. But if you have a look, there's no life in the ponds. There's no reeds growing on the edge. They're whippersnippering. They're, they're weed whacking right to the edge of the water. And then there's a deadline. That it's got to be herbicided. But then I, I now I've found the story. And, and all the, all the fertilizer runoff from the suburbs and, and high nitrates, soluble nitrates, phosphates, etc., are going in the ponds. The ponds are getting an algae bloom. So then they're, they're spraying algaecide in the ponds, and then the cycle begins. And then people don't want, you know, water moccasins and snakes and stuff around the edge of the pond. So they want clean grass right to the edge of the pond. Um, so they herbicide right down the edge of the pond. They mow to the edge of the pond. They then worry that they haven't got any fish in the pond because of the algaecide, so they've got mosquito larvae. So then they've grown pesticide on the pond. It's just a pharmaceutical nightmare. It's a chemical nightmare that, that ends up like everything you look at is 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 dressed with chemicals. The food, the ponds, the streets, the landscape, the people, the kids. Everybody's worried about everything that's alive, and they're, they're just putting all their faith in pharmaceuticals. So everywhere you look, there's chemicals on everything, all the foods and the people, and then there's pharmaceuticals with all the risk factor additions to the adverts going on the end of everything so you know evidence bad food bad drink probably way too much alcohol to numb everybody from the from the scenario and, and then you've got pharmaceutical drugs promising you that you you can be repaired potentially kept alive in a terrible state by the look of it but always with you know some risk factor that they, their litigation statement at the end of every advert and then life insurance so that you're insured your life is insured anyway so that you know you can keep other people well, after you're gone maybe you can you get some funds to the people who are going to carry on the same scenario it's really really quite sad you can't carry on like this uh you can't it's bound to turn into a toxic soup and all kinds of mutated organisms will take over and eventually there'll be a a mass dieback of humanity. Um, although the, you know, the pharmaceuticals are going to make the money all the way through. It's just a, a cyclic event from chemical food to chemical people to pharmaceutical semi-repair to life insurance, etc., and all the gizmos and gimmicks that that remove you from reality. And 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 reality out there is a novel ecosystem full of various, you know, very interesting weeds actually. There's a lots and lots of of invasive species that are trying really hard to cauterize the damage of this severe massive wound on the environment. And uh, you know, as you know, Florida's full of water. I mean, it's all high water table mostly and uh, you could have chinampas feeding the world almost talk about florida you'll feed the rest of america from chinampas from here if you wanted to but you could definitely every suburb can feed itself i mean um you know if you want clean edges to ponds you could put gabion baskets rock gabion baskets around the edge that you know um are uh, half submerged in the water so you've got a clean water edge and you could you could use tied together they'd, they'd be really stable you could mow to the back end of the gabion you could put you know gravel 
uh, you can put gravel reed beds here and there and have solar pumps cycling water up into gravel reed beds that then flow the water back through the rock gabion baskets keeping the water nice and fresh and full of life and controllable so you don't have to have you know the danger of snakes and things there's ways around this you can have chinampas type systems with you know trellises over the top with deciduous vines and evergreen vines and shade house and if and in summer and, and polytunnel in winter and heat the water cool the water there's all kinds of things we could do to make this the problem be the solution but right now everybody's sliding down the problem hill at a fast rate and we could climb our way out up the solution hill because it's always uphill doing it right and it's always down an easy downhill slide doing it wrong everyone's taking the path of least resistance which is really downhill to a sort of biological hell anyway while i'm sitting here waiting for the missus to come out with some cheap shopping to, for the relatives in jordan so i'm part of the problem right now but i just thought i'd i'd send you a chat um and maybe you want to put this online i don't care if you do but someone's need to talk about this we need to get this out there because we can do this we can we can design this into the most abundant thing imaginable imaginable and you don't lose any technology you gain technology you gain employment and you gain life back and and the fish i mean you know there's still great fish here but my goodness it must have been paradise before the this nightmare started still pretty nice i mean you know but and uh interestingly here uh near jacksonville st augustine it's very very similar climate to where i live so i'd like to keep trying to help and flipping through here whenever i can okay mate nice to chat and great to be in america um great to be connected to so many people that are trying to do the right thing and um i'm 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 really i really want to help okay mate cheers so i just wanted to throw this out there um first of all this idea of having these ponds for lack of a better term uh especially at large retail outlets etc is is nothing unique to florida it exists all over the country Uh, I've seen it in Arkansas, I've seen it in Pennsylvania, I see it right here in Texas. And the reason is simple, they put in these massive parking lots, and you end up creating a massive amount of runoff, and then you have to have some place to channel that runoff, which in of itself isn't a terrible thing. And the big difference is that in Florida, if you want to you know, drill a well, you can use a PVC pipe and a garden hose. I, I'm dead serious, like my grandfather had a well put into water as grass, When I lived in Florida as a kid, and the guy came out and drilled him a nine-foot deep well, and he said the water table was like four feet down. And he drilled him a nine-foot deep well using a PVC pipe. And I mean, this is a proper well with a pump head and all that on it, like where you could irrigate the whole like half-acre property. But he drilled the well with a PVC pipe and with a garden hose. That's because there's so much sand in the water table so high. So, for instance, there is an, a perfect example of what Jeff's talking about. At a Target parking lot. You think that's what he's talking about? Um, just down the road from me a couple miles. It's huge. It's massive. And last week, it rained for like three days straight. And when I went down there, there was a puddle in the bottom of it. And if I go there today, it hasn't rained for two days. I imagine it's might be soppy down there, but it's dry. It's not a pond. So most of these places where this happens, the water just drains into the ground. They're basically giant round swales that infiltrate water. But when you dig one of these in a place like Florida, what you end up with is a pond. 
I mean, if you dig a hole in Florida, it fills up with water. I've seen it happen. And it creates this potential for these problems. Now, I have I love a place called Sanibel Island and uh, Captiva and North Captiva Islands as well. And I've spent a lot of time there. And it's one of the places I've become truly concerned about the environment in Florida. As a fisherman, it breaks my heart to go out and catch something like a Goliath grouper and have that be a bucket list item and do so much care in myself and the guide that I had to make sure that animal is returned to the water and a week later see 20 of them washed up dead on a beach. I, I cannot tell you how much that hurts my soul as an environmentalist and a fisherman. But what I will say for Sanibel Island is there's tons of these little ponds all over Sanibel Island, and none of them look like what Jeff described. And the reason I think that's important is everybody's worried there'll be a snake or there'll be an alligator or whatever. Sanibel Island is like, if you go in the summertime, 80% of the people there are tourists. Everything is tourism. There's little kids and bicycles everywhere, and somehow everybody gets by with these little ponds all over the place, And yeah, there's some snakes in them. Some of them have some alligators in them, etc. And nobody dies. Nobody incinerates themselves. Uh, nobody falls off into a black hole of goo and disappears from the galaxy. Somehow, everything's okay. And in Sanibel Island, they just simply don't allow the shit that Jeff's talking about. It's not okay. It's one of the most environmentally centered places I've ever seen. Now, they do have some stupid nonsense, like they adopted California's stupid no-plastic-straw rule, as though people go to the bar at the hotel and drink the plastic cup of their pina colada and then throw the cup away and run down to the beach and throw the straw straight into the nose of a sea turtle. It's just stupid, but they do seem to get some things right. So these little ponds that Jeff's talking about, you go to any shopping center and just off of the pavement you will find a pond. Myself and Doc Bones last year stood looking into one of these ponds, and you know what we saw in the pond? A bunch of different types of cichlids, like the ones you see in like aquarium shops. There was tons of life in that pond. There were turtles. There was a snake swimming on the pond. And Doc Bones and I looked at the snake. He said, look, there's a snake. And I said, there's a snake. You're right. Look at it. It's a snake. That snake did not swim out of the water at 1,000 miles an hour and bite Doc Bones in the face and kill him. It just swam through the water and did its snake thing. So we don't have to do this stupid shit. In Florida, or anywhere else where this is going. Because I imagine this is common throughout the southeast with similar water table issues. And I would love to see us get to the point where we turn these things into chinampas and we turn these things into food production systems. It would be great. But I would settle for just, let's stop screwing shit up. Let's stop chemicalizing everything. But I think what Jeff's point there was is that we won't get there until we have to. But at least when we get there, we know how to. Or as Buck Mr. Fuller said, we are supposed to be the architects of the future, not its victims. Anyway, with that, let's take another one. This is from uh, Derek Bonpietro on tire pressure. Hey, TSP listeners. This is Derek from Affordable DC Generators. Got a question from Michael in North Georgia about some tires, so let's get into it. What is the correct tire pressure? Should I put in the tires on my truck? Truck pressure recommendation versus tire pressure recommendation with an E-range tire on a half-ton truck. Details. I have a 2015 Crew Cab F-150 4x4 with Bridgestone Dueler Revo 3, tire size 285-70 R-17 E-rated. The tire says I should inflate it to 85 PSI, while the sticker on the truck says I should only put 38 PSI in the tires. I want the tires to wear correctly and last as long as possible. 
I previously had a set of Bridgestone Dueler Revo 2s with E-rated sidewalls and kept them around 80 PSI. I use the truck to pull campers, tractors, and hay several times per year, sometimes bordering on overloading the truck's towing capacity. Not sure if the tire type size is necessary, just wanted to give you as much info as possible. Well, Michael, let's kind of dig through all the stuff that you just gave me one piece at a time. So he's got a half-ton truck, which typically most people aren't going to use day-to-day for hauling heavy loads, but Michael does. So he's right on the borderline of the vehicle's capacity with some of his usage, and then I'm sure he's got some just typical going-to-work and around-town stuff where there's no weight on the vehicle. So these are two extreme operating conditions, and there's not one set tire pressure for both of those that are going to be safe or effective. But let me go through the basics of tire pressure first before we get into that. So first things first, when we're measuring tire pressure, we should have a good gauge. We should be doing this while the vehicle's cold. So we don't want to drive around for a bunch, heat the air up in the tires, and then take a pressure reading. Vehicles should be stationary for a while when we take our readings. It's going to give us the most accurate number. Now, Michael brings up that his manufacturer rating on the sidewall of the tire says 85 PSI, and that he's also got a sticker that's on the vehicle, so every vehicle is going to have one of these, and it's also going to say it uh, in the owner's manual as well. There's going to be a placard, typically open up the driver's side, and you're going to see a sticker there, and it's going to give you uh, the pressure for the front and rear tires sometimes are the same, they're, sometimes they're different, um, but you'll also want to reference the correct size of the tire. So you're going to look on the sidewall and match it up because some vehicles do have different rim and tire packages. So we want to do all of our homework there before we look at the number and just guess which one we have. So we've got that number, and that's the manufacturer's recommended pressure that the vehicle should be set at. It's also noted that anything that falls outside of a certain threshold of that pressure that's set for the vehicle, if you have a 2000 and typically like mid-2000s or later vehicle, tire pressure monitor is going to kick off that little light on the dash because that's what the vehicle should be at. It can be plus or minus just a little bit to allow for temperature variations, but that's really the golden number that the manufacturer wants the tire to be at. Now, this is a great starting point as far as tire pressures. Now, for cars, typically just stick with that unless you're into sports cars or something like that and you're going to track days. Um, Off-road vehicles, you can mess with pressures when you're off-road because it's going to give you better traction. But for the most part, on-road vehicles, you're going to want to stick to those numbers. When you're hauling more weight, we need to bump that number up. We probably want to be on the higher end of the pressure. Uh, For example, if you're going to load that F-150, which is a half-ton truck, right to the threshold and the manufacturer calls for around 38 PSI, it probably wouldn't hurt to maybe go up to 45, 55, 65 in the back to keep that tire from squatting down and becoming overheated while going down the road because the less pressure and the more weight on it is going to push the tire down. You're going to see it in the sidewall. It's going to get lower and lower and kind of squat out, and that's going to cause some abnormal wear on the outer edges of the tread, and it's going to heat the tire up, and it can cause a blowout. This is pretty much the most common thing you see on trailers and RVs going down the road, blown out tires because they're overheating. They're overweight or they're under pressure. Now, when you step up into like a three-quarter or one-ton truck, you're going to see that tire placard usually say like 80-something PSI for the rear tires, which if you're driving it around unloaded is just about the craziest thing you can do because the tire is super stiff. It's going to give you a poor ride. It's going to wear down the center of the tread because it's typically overinflated. It doesn't need that kind of pressure to run unloaded. That pressure setting is really for when the truck is maxed out and doing its thing. So we can take the pressures down. In this case, what Michael's got here is he can uh, bump the pressures up slightly 
which might give you a little bit better fuel economy and wear and tear on the tire and give you some more mileage. But here's the thing. We really can't go very far outside of the threshold that's on that sticker because if we do, the tire pressure sensor is going to come on. Now, a lot of guys online seem to be running a little bit higher into the 40s with their F-150s, and they're not wearing the center of the tread down. So they're having good luck with that. They might be still within the threshold of what the vehicle allows. So it sounds like you might want to get away with running a little bit higher on your truck without sacrificing the ride. So with high tire pressures, we get more load capacity and a little bit better fuel economy, but we're sacrificing ride quality because the sidewall is stiffer. As you're going down the road, that sidewall is actually moving in and out just like a spring, and it's actually part of the suspension at that point, kind of soaking up the bumps in the road. And the stiffer it is with the higher the pressure, the worse ride it's going to give you. The lower the pressure, you're going to typically get increased wear on the tire because it's actually contacting the road more, a decrease in fuel economy, but you get a little bit of better ride. So typically if you're taking your truck off-road, even down a dirt road, it doesn't hurt to take 10, 15 pounds of air out of the tires. So now the sidewall is a little bit more uh, flexible and absorbs more of the bumps down the road. So these are all little tuning tricks that you can do. Now the key here is that one, we don't upset that tire pressure monitor, and two, we don't overinflate the tire to the point where it's going to bald the center of the tread out. Now you can play with some numbers. You could do probably most of this homework online because it's all been done before. But if you're driving down the road, put some mileage on the vehicle. You can use your tread depth indicator and start to see the tread and make sure that it's still wearing evenly. If you're getting more wear in the center of the tread, you're just running way too high a pressure and you got to drop down. Bring it down three or five PSI, keep running, and keep a logbook of this. Now, if you want to get into it, you know, it takes a little more homework, but that's what it takes to really tune a tire pressure. Another thing here is that if you decide you want to run a higher pressure, you can reset the thresholds on the tire pressure monitor. To do this, you need a, a factory Ford scan tool or you need a tuner. Good luck going to the Ford dealership and getting one of those technicians to reset it. Technician's probably fine doing it, but one, he's going to want to get paid. And two, the service writer is going to probably call you out because they don't want to be liable for anything that happens that you might do with the tire pressure. So it's going to be hit or miss. Might involve a case of beer or some 20s uh, on the back parking lot where the, the dealership isn't aware of it. But good luck with that end of it. But you can adjust the pressures up and down from the factory variation. Key here is to really not go by what's on the sidewall of the tire. That's the maximum pressure that the tire can withstand. That particular Bridgestone uh, Dueler Revo, it doesn't know what vehicle it's going on. Uh, so that maximum pressure is what the tire can hold, not necessarily for your necessarily for your application. So just be aware of that. You can't go above 85 psi, but it doesn't mean that you should be running it at 85 psi, which is what the sidewall says. So, Michael, I hope that answers your question, and good luck with your tire pressures. Well, that about wraps it up on the Affordable DC Generator YouTube channel. We've got a new one with inverters, so how to build your own kind of homebrew standby inverter system so that way when the power goes out, it kicks on automatically and keeps your loads running. So check that out and subscribe to the website and the YouTube channel. Thanks, guys. Good stuff from Derek, as always, and it's something that we should be thinking about. is not just And it's not just tires. Just obeying the label, right? Labels are designed for the people who actually tried to iron their clothes while on their body. Um, labels are designed for people that actually tried to blow dry their hair in the shower. That's what labels are for. We have, that's our two examples of real labels. Do not iron clothes on body. Do not use hair dryer in shower, right? That's what labels are for. They are to prevent exceeding 
things that actually lead to, like, damage and or death. Okay? Much to the dismay of members of the Darwin Society. Anyway, we need to be thinking rational people that always make decisions based on the totality of the situation. The label is good as a make sure you don't die thing or make sure you don't break this thing thing, but we should take a little closer look at just about everything that we do. On that, let's hear from J.R. Haley on long-range shooting and shortening length of bull. Hey, TSV. J.R. here with the Expert Council, answering your questions on guns, gun gear, and all things firearm-related. It's a two-for-one Friday since the fall workshop is coming up next weekend. I'm excited to see the rest of the folks that will be making the trip, but my liver is a little apprehensive. First up, Ron asks about long-range shooting. What is the best caliber to go with for long-range shooting out to 1,000 yards, 6.5 Creedmoor or 308? Additionally, he's trying to weigh the decision with considering how hard ammo might be to come by in the future. So I did research this for you as I don't actually have a lot of long-range shooting experience, only that of a couple buddies that are into it. The longest I've made any hits were man-sized silhouette steel targets at 500 yards with 5.56, and that wasn't bullseye, bullseye shooting, just ring the steel and be happy with it. The great thing about these two calibers are out to a thousand yards is there's a ton of data when you pair that with factory match ammo with your MOA choice or your Mills optics to make those hits. 6.5 Creedmoor builds itself as being designed for the purpose of long range shooting with a better ballistic coefficient and really being built with that purpose in mind from the ground up. Knowing your MOA adjustments and your mill adjustments great, but that all-important factor of reading the wind comes into plays at those ranges, and the 6.5 Creedmoor is built to resist that wind influence better than 308. And I, I really feel like we're kind of talking six is one, half a dozen is another. Because you've got competition shooters that run match-grade M1 Garands in 30-06 that are still doing 1,000-yard competitions with iron sights. So when the research says 6.5 Creedmoor is better for this reason or that reason, when you have old men hitting paper at 1,000 yards with 30-06 and irons, it really comes down to what game do you want to play and how would you like to enjoy playing it. So with what you propose, for me, if I were choosing between those calibers, I'd set up a 6.5 Creedmoor rig. As to the ammo availability, are you thinking about stockpiling it at all? Because that's the best option when one has concerns about ammo shortages. And if you're shooting a 1,000 yards, even those old men with M1 Garands, they're using match-grade ammo. So I doubt you want to set all this money and time into the 1,000-yard game with inexpensive ball ammo. But without question, if there's a run on ammo, 308 would be most likely to be able to be found on the shelf. For me... I kind of take that concern in the good times and stock up, you know, 500 to 1,000 rounds, whatever you you feel comfortable with. And one last piece of the long-range stuff. I did say between 308 and 6.5 Creedmoor, I'd go with the latter. But if I wasn't limited to either of those, I'd probably go 338 Lapua. Because as Tim the Toolman Taylor would say, if you want a job done quick and you want a job done right, what do we need? More power! All right, second question. Not much unlike second breakfast. 
This comes from Chris. And he's working on a Marlin 1895 wanted to reduce the felt recoil. He added a slip-on pad for recoil reduction, but finds the length of pull a bit much at this point and would like suggestions on how to proceed from there. So reducing the length of pull on a woodstock isn't terribly difficult, but it can certainly be bubbaized and turn out far from aesthetically pleasing. So Chris, I grew up in rural Oklahoma next to a gunsmith. He had his own gun shop. He had a trap range, which he had weekend events on. And when I turned 12, I was part of his venture into putting together Oklahoma's second shotgun sporting clays course into existence. And I worked there and was around Robert until I left for the military just after high school. So that little backstory to let you know that I saw this exact thing happen several times. Now, I didn't figure I could put that all together from memory. But my old buddy, Larry Potterfield from Midway USA, has an outstanding video, real quick three-minute video on doing this by hand. And it's what I – when I watched the video, I was like, man, that was exactly like what Robert was doing. So um, it lines up with everything I remember on that. You can see tons of other videos that you know includes disc sanders and bandsaws and all that. And that's not what Larry shows in the video, and that's not what Robert did when he was doing it either. You'll need to figure out the length of pull that you prefer. Is it 12.75 inches? As you mentioned, a shorter length of pull seems to fit you better, or something like 13 inches. Either way, measure that from the place where the pad of your finger rests on the trigger to the back and center of the buttstock. Once you know what length of pull you're after, then you can watch Larry's video and see if it's something that you want to tackle. You'll have to offset the cut on the stock with the depth of that recoil pad, too. So be sure the recoil pad that you've chosen is the one that you want to stick with because that can make things pretty awkward in the future and get your length of pull all out of whack again if you change recoil pads. One important piece to emphasize, and Larry briefly touches on it in the video, is that the cut in your stock should be 90 degrees or perpendicular to your sight plane. So don't just use the plane of the barrel to find this angle. Some barrels are tapered, and it's going to mess up your measurement. I remember Robert having several jigs for normal firearms that he would do this with, so I know it was critically important to getting the task done right. It was half of his setup that I would see him use to doing these cuts. But once you find that angle, or plane, or azimuth as it were, the vertical line that you cut in the stock should be 90 degrees out from that sight plane. And the last thing that you mentioned in your email was a muzzle device. And uh, a muzzle device that is purpose-built for recoil compensation is the real deal. I'll tell you that. The good ones that are out there really do work. Now, it's going to throw some excess gas and fireballs out to the side, so be wary of that. That was a get smart by doing stupid moment in my life. So I'll tell you, pro tip, when that muzzle device is all compensation and no flash hider, be sure that muzzle device isn't close to anyone you consider a friend. And it's going to be louder too, so make note of that. But if you go with a compensator, those suckers definitely do work. All right, TCP, that's it for me. Thanks for all the questions. If you want to continue any dialogue on these segments, swing over to the Survival Podcast and toss up a comment in the show notes. Thanks, Jack.
So here is an email from, well, before I go to my question for the day, I wanted to just say something about the 1895 and reducing the length of pull so that the rifle can accommodate a recoil pad. So I'm assuming you're talking about a 4570 here. So I have a suggestion that might just make all of this easier. You, you could just not load your 4570 uh, rounds to the capacity that there are, you know, junior versions of a 458 Win Mag. You could just download the cartridge a little bit and doesn't really have heavy recoil at all at that point. I'm just, I'm not saying you should. I'm just saying that this is another option. Like, I always want to know what is the easiest way to get the result I'm looking for. And if you're like, but Jack, ma, I want to kill a deer. First of all, you could load a 4570 to, you know, trapdoor load uh, capacity with a 305 grain hollow point and you are going to kill all the deer all the time with that round. Like, you're going to make them dead. A 405-grain flat point is the most common other round, uh, uh, projectile for the 4570. And it has a little bit more thump to it uh, at trapdoor loads, which all of your factory-loaded rounds are, unless you go to, like, Buffalo Boar or Corbon or something like that. Like, all your general, you can go buy rounds at the, the store for 45 are loaded to the lowest common denominator. So they can be used in old trapdoor springfields and things like that, not blow a breach out. Those are just not that heavy recoiling. Additionally, if there is a cartridge you're going to own that you should become a hand loader for, it's the 4570. Otherwise, you have to go into debt to buy ammo. It's just so ridiculously expensive, and it shouldn't be, but it is. So with hand loading, you can easily download a little bit from there for day-to-day -day shooting. And if you do want to thunder down the alley with a 500-grain hardcast lead because you're going to go elk hunting or something with it, then you only need shoot it a couple times to confirm zero or to alter zero because you've changed the load. And then you only need shoot it when you're killing something. And day-to-day, -day, you can just shoot a lighter loaded round out of it. And you don't have to worry. No one will take your man card away from that. Um, I find the 4570 to be one of the more underrated cartridges on the planet. I love the 4570 for everything it does, and I have never felt the need to load it to the capacity where it beat the shit out of me. Um, my favorite 4570 is a beat to crap, but it looks pretty nice because I fixed it up. NEF handy rifle that I bought from a guy for $120 walking around at a gun show. And I've shot that with, you know, a little over, a little over your trapdoor loads. Um, not quite to like a Ruger number one load. If you look at the Hornady manual and see like the, where they break the, the stuff out, but a little bit over and it's, it's, it's pretty hard. It's like shooting at 12 gauge with slugs when you shoot it, you know, right at or right under your trapdoor loadings, which is adequate again for anything. It just, I, I mean, I'm going to tell you that I have a 1894 and 44 mag and it doesn't kick as hard, but it doesn't kick much less. It's just, I mean, it's 30-30 and down level type of recoil. So there is that option. All right, now let's talk about my question today from Derek. Derek says, how would markets need to change in order for you to become a proponent of buying gold stocks and ETFs, not physical gold? D, 
Details, I know from listening to you, you are not into gold right now. Haven't been as long as you've been podcasting. Many people think gold is a flight to safety when markets go into recession, but it sounds like your plan is to get out of the market if there's a recession. Are there specific trends related to prices, interest rates, etc.? Strength of the dollar would turn you in favor of investing in gold. If so, what are they? Thanks so much, Derek. So this is really two questions. One, we're talking about gold stocks and gold ETFs, and we're talking about gold and silver. I am a proponent of gold and silver. I have been recommending, I don't know where you get that I'm not, Derek. I have been recommending that people invest in gold and silver at a rate of about 5% to 10% for, oh, 11 years and 9 months of podcasting at this point. Something, something to that effect. 11 years and 6 months, something in that range. As long as I've been doing this. Uh, my recommendation for physical gold and silver at that ratio of 5% to 10% of net worth has never wavered for a second. I've never come on board and said, hey, I'm changing it. Not once. So obviously I'm not opposed to silver and gold. I think that silver and gold is the majority of your holdings is dumb, 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 dummy, dumb, dumb, dumb. Stupid. And you shouldn't do it with any form of silver or gold ever, the end, infinity. And this the only reason people think that way is because the dollar is going to crash into oblivion, etc. And it's just it's not the world we live in, and going to gold and silver and ETFs in that scenario, would probably result in just as bad of a loss if it went that bad because no one would ever be able to cover the paper that the gold and silver is based on because there's not enough underlying asset to cover the gold and silver in ETFs and certainly in a mining stock, which if you can't pay your people in dollars, I don't know that you can run your excavators to open the hole bigger to get more gold out. All right, So that's just that's not the way we approach things. So now let's talk about silver and gold. And where these different vehicles fit in to me. Because that's what we're talking about here is vehicles. We have, in fact, I would say we have different uh, vehicles and then we have different garages is a way to look at this. So in our world of garages, we have a box somewhere that you forgot about if anybody ever asks about it. I don't know. I lost it in a boating accident with all my guns, right? That box is where we keep gold and silver that we can physically touch. That is one garage, right? Uh, another garage that we might have would be something like, and I'm, I'm just not a huge fan of them anymore because of some of the changes that have been made to regulations, but would be something like a box at a bank, a safe deposit box. Another garage would be something like a, a just a, a brokerage account. A brokerage account would be something for trading securities that you cannot tax defer because you've exceeded the amount that you're able to tax defer or you just don't you want some of your investments to be liquid without having to go into tax deferred status right that's that is a, a, another garage so that would be like a Schwab account or an E-Trade account right and then another garage would be something like a traditional retirement account a 401k an IRA etc and then there's two flavors of that garage we have a conventional and we have a Roth And there's more garages that we can put investments into, but those are just some basic ones to understand where I'm coming from. Then we have the vehicle that goes in the garage. A silver bar is a type of a silver vehicle, a, a silver uh, round, a silver eagle, a gold bar, a gold eagle, etc. All of these are cars, like they're vehicles that we can invest in. And then an ETF is another sort of precious metal vehicle that can go into a garage, And a mining stock is another vehicle that can go into a garage. So what are the purposes of these? And then how do we determine what garage they belong in and what garage they probably never belong in? So physical gold and silver is not as useful for trading 
when it comes to making money on gains and averting losses, etc., uh, taking positions short, long, etc., it's not good for that. Silver and gold that you hold is not good because I think silver is going to go up, you know, 20% over the next quarter, and I want to buy it and I want to sell it at the end of that quarter. That's actually it's the worst car to go in any garage if that's your goal. So why do we buy it? Because once I have it, it's mine, and it doesn't. Ex it's gone. I bought it. It's gone. I don't know where it went. And if I want to give it to Derek. Because Derek, owe, I owe Derek something, or I want something from Derek, and he says, I want something from you, and I give it to Derek, it's our own business. That's its real value. That's, that is, it has an intrinsic value, and, and Derek can take it if he wants cash down to a shop, and he, when he gets it in his hand, he could have made a phone call. He already knows, like, he's, Jack's going to give me five silver eagles. And if I take it to Joe's Silver Emporium today, Joe is going to pay me X dollars. Or he can just keep it. And it's between me and Joe and the fence post. So the, the, the garage that silver and gold that we can touch goes into should be a garage that's private. A floor safe. A strong box. Yeah, at, at, at the most, public would be a safe deposit box. This is or a private you know, wealth storage facility. That's where that goes. Because it's private, so the last thing I want to do is public it. Right? So when people say they want to hold physical silver and gold in an IRA, I'm like, that is stupid, stupid, dumb, stupid, dumb. You've taken the most anonymous private form of wealth that there is, and you've put it in the wrong garage. You've put it in the most public garage there is. You've advertised to the government that this is, this is my wealth, I have it, it's over here. The only reason we would do that is if we absolutely, for some reason, were holding our breath, and we wanted to buy silver and gold with money that was already in one of those accounts that can't be got out of that account. That's the only reason we would do that. And I wouldn't do that. I personally would not do that. I would find another way to get that done. Now, inside the garage that is a brokerage account or an IRA, this is public. Everything we do in there, in that garage, somebody, think of it this way, that you go in and you swapped out a motor and somebody takes a picture of it and mails it to the government. He changed out the motor. He, you know, like he did something to the car. He sold the car and bought a new car. It's all told to the government. So that means there is no anonymity inside any of those accounts at all. And if you think there's no anonymity in your E-Trade account, once you have a IRA in your E-Trade account, there really is no anonymity. But there's none in any of it. So now there's no... I lost it in a when my boat sank with my guns on it story anymore. It doesn't exist, right? It's, it's traced. So there's no advantage to the physical metal. Since there's no advantage to the physical metal, we have no advantage to the physical metal at all. Unless we were holding long-term, and then we shouldn't have it inside a retirement account because if we're worried about catastrophic failure, the, the, the retirement account itself is a target, So now there's no reason not, if we're going to trade silver and gold, to not use ETFs. In fact, it's the only thing I would use in the, inside those garages. So if uh, my financial advisor called me up and said, Jack, there's some stuff going on right now, and I think that there's going to be a massive move up in silver. That didn't happen. Okay, just so you guys are clear, that didn't happen. Hypothetical. And he said, I, I think we should you know, buy like $20,000 worth of silver because I think we can make like five grand on that $20,000 in the next like 15 days. And for, for some reason, I believed him. 
I would not go buy $20,000 worth of Silver Eagles. We would use my brokerage account, and whether it was tax-deferred or not, it would be in one of those garages. I would buy a Silver ETF and go ahead and put a, you know, get ready to sell. What's our exit strategy here? And then it would be like, well, what's our collar? Like, if it goes up but not to where you think it's going, we're going to chase it with a sell order underneath it so that if it starts to come back down, we're, we're out before we, we, we lose the opportunity to collect what we got. It's a short-term tra trading vehicle, or it's a public garage hold. So if you wanted to hold silver long or you wanted to hold gold long in an IRA, then I would use an ETF. Now, what would it take for me to change my total recommendation? A lot. A lot. Why... Why is my plan, when I see the next recession coming, to run to cash? The reason is because then I get to buy whatever I want when it comes down. There is no guarantee that just because the stock market comes down that gold will go up. In fact, you know, if gold's sitting at $300 in the modern era, which it hasn't seen for a very long time, you would probably be able to make a pretty strong case that it could. With gold where it is, for as long as it's been there, the idea that when we go into a global recession, the price of gold is going to skyrocket is stupid. So gold may not be what I want to buy. So you're trying to buy before the fall, estimating that after the fall, the thing you bought will go up. That's high risk. I don't do high risk with my money. I do, oh, look at the market, it's doing fairly well, we're invested in these things, and that's great, and that's wonderful, and I like that where we're at right now, yeah. Uh, let's keep an eye on that thing there, okay, you know what, here's an opportunity, let's move over to that, yeah, okay, and we'll let it go. So, I don't believe in long hold in autopilot. I don't do investing like that. I we, we look at it constantly, we trade minimally, but we look constantly, and then when you go, oh, look at that, there's a Category 5 hurricane, hell-bent for us. Because most of these catastrophic market losses, these are not your short-term, like, oh, the market went down 400 points, ah! And it's like, yeah, so we we lost like 1%. Shut up. Shut up, Jim Cramer. Shut up. Right? Your advice has always been useless. It's even more useless now than ever. Shut up. Nothing happened. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about events like the dot-com bubble all the way back in the day when some of you weren't even born yet. I'm talking about events like the 1987 crash. I'm talking about events like... Um, the most recent 08-09 stock market crash that I begged people to get out of the way of. When you get out before that and everybody's losing their minds, you can very calmly assess the best opportunity to go back in with your cash on with no panic whatsoever. You don't have fear of loss. You don't have fear of not having potential gain. You're calm. And then you're able to buy when others are selling. So you want to sell when others are buying and you want to buy when others are selling. That is just a fundamental rule of, of, of trading. So I'm going to trade silver and gold the same way I'm going to trade any other commodity or any other security based on the current economic reality. So what would have to happen for me to go into gold or silver heavily? I would have to have a compelling case made to me that there is a tremendous potential upside and that that potential upside exceeds the other opportunities that are generally considered safer, better plays. 
Because if I think I can make 20% on gold and silver, but I know I can make 15% on something that's got less volatility in it potentially, I'm going to take the 15% saver play. And I'm going to do that over and over and over and over and over again across my whole life. And because of that, I will win more than I lose. And the person that is always swinging for the fences may get one or two really great grand slams, but in the end, their performance will generally be lower than the person that is selective and safe. So that's that's the totality of that picture. I have nothing against silver and gold. And I actually consider a 5% holding in silver and gold to be a significant holding for anybody that's following the principles I teach. And if you're right and gold becomes worth an ever-loving fortune, that person's fine. But if you go all in and you're wrong, you're not, and they still are. That's the difference. Anyway, with that, we've wrapped up another episode of the Survival Podcast. I'd like to remind you that you can help support this show by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. I've been thinking about some things lately, and one of them is it's cold outside. Yesterday I said on Facebook, you can say what you want about global warming, but the way things are in Texas right now, I'm damn near ready to buy a heated keyboard if they make one. My hands are freezing. And I started thinking about that, and I started thinking about my puppy dogs. And I thought, you know, it's time to bring around uh, the BioGroom waterless pet shampoo again as an item of the day. I first found this stuff a couple of years ago. My dog Charlie got into something, and he stunk. He smelled bad, like rotten Cheetos out of the garbage or something like that. Now, I knew he didn't actually get into Cheetos or garbage, but that would be the best. Like, if you think of the way, like, stinky popcorn and sticky, stinky Cheetos left in the garbage can in the garage that you forgot about for, like, a week, that's what his head smelled like. It also was very, very cold that day and kind of misty and nasty, and I don't want to bathe a 100-pound pit bull in a tub, And I don't want to bathe 100 pound anything outdoors in the cold weather. Fortunately for Charlie, I had already decided I was going to give this BioGroom stuff a try. And I had already had it ordered, and it was already coming to me from Amazon.com. And it was due that day. So he was spared the hose, and so was I. Later that day, the BioGroom arrived. I took Charlie out on the porch. It was chilly, but we were secure and safe under the porch. I sprayed Charlie down from head to ass. And around his face and neck and head where he really stunk, I sprayed the stuff on my hands and I rubbed it in so that he didn't get it in his eyes. I took a cheap, everyday hairbrush that I have dedicated to the dogs because I don't believe in dog brushes and people brushes. The plain old people brushes work great. And I brushed it into him. He shook off as though he had been bathed, but he really hadn't, so nothing flew off of him and I stayed dry. He went back in the house and I gave him a biscuit. I had a shiny, happy, non-stinky dog. You can too, using... BioGroom Waterless Pet Shampoo. Yes, it really works. A great big bottle of it's about eight bucks. I use it on all my dogs now, including my 150-pound German Shepherd. If you think it is hard to bathe a 100-pound pit bull mix who does not want to be bathed, try with a 150-pound German Shepherd that doesn't want to be bathed, who's also a giant baby. Even my little Lucy Lou, my little uh, uh, husky pit bull mix, she's a good little girl, but she runs scared from water like crazy. I can even get her brush without her peeing all over the place with this stuff. And again, a simple everyday hairbrush, the big flat kind with the spaced out bristles. I have a link in the in the notes. It's the best brush for your dog. Uh, the one I have in the, the the notes here is like seven hundred seven seven hundred dollars for a hairbrush. I'm sorry, seven bucks. But I mean, if you go to like Eckerd's or something like that, and you look for a brush like this, you can usually find them for three or four dollars. 
That's all your dogs need. I also recommend a product, and it's linked in this write-up too, called the Furminator for a shedding brush. Shedding is a different thing. But when it's just day-to-day brushing on your dogs, just a big old spaced-out, rubber-tipped uh, bristle brush. It just works so good, and it's so cheap. Just make sure you remember which one belongs to you and which one belongs to your your, your canine friends. But give this BioGroom a try. And remember, uh, everything I've ever reviewed on Amazon, you can find it at tspaz.com, and you can buy anything online. As long as you start at tspaz.com, you help support us and the work that we do. You can also become a member of the MSB. I won't say much about that other than, hey, you like the show? You want it to be here? Become a member and then get your money back plus with all the discounts that we get you to do that. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on subscribe. I got a great old rock and roll song for you guys today for a Friday going out on the music segment. It's Take It Easy by the Eagles. Take It Easy was the first um, single released by the Eagles. It was the like kind of the lead song on their first album. And uh, it was not actually written by any of the Eagles. It, it really wasn't. It was actually written, well, most of it was written by Jackson Brown. Yeah, this song was written by Jackson Brown. Uh, Jackson Brown started writing this song for his first album, but he didn't know how to finish it. At the time, he was living in an apartment in the Echo Park section of Los Angeles, and his upstairs neighbor, Glenn Fry, who needed songs for his new band called The Eagles, Fry heard Brown working on the song. He says he learned a lot about songwriting by listening to his downstairs neighbor at work and told Jackson that he thought it would be, that he thought it was great. Brown said he was having trouble completing the track and played what he had. When he got to the second verse, Fry came up with the key lyric, It's a girl, my lord, in a flatbed Ford slowing down to take a look at me. Brown turned the song over to Fry, who finished writing it and recorded it with the Eagles. He used it as the first song on their first album, also their first single. Fry said that Brown did most of the work, and the song was very, and he was on the song, and uh, Jackson was very generous in sharing the writing credit. He described the unfinished version of the song as a package without the ribbon. He put the ribbon on it, and they made it into a hell of a hit. And I've always thought when I was listening to that song, you know, you could hear Jackson Brown playing that song. There's a lot of people from that era that have a very similar sound. And I, that sound is when music didn't suck, by the way, just just so you know. Uh, Warren Zevon, Jackson Brown, the Eagles, uh, John Fogarty, a lot of these folks from all in that sound have a very similar uh, vein to the sound of their music. And again, that's, that's the sound when music didn't suck. Um, I've always really loved this song because, man, doesn't it just fit no matter where you are? in the world. If you think about it, people thought the world was ending in the 70s, right? I mean, this song came out in uh, 1972. We were still dealing with the end of the Vietnam War. The United States was in a massive recession. Uh, later on in the 80s, when, when I really got into music, because you know, I didn't really get into music until I was you know, at least like 10, 11 years old, so by then we're in the 80s. The, this song was still a huge thing. Like among my friends in the 80s. And you know why? Well, we thought we were all going to die from nuclear war. See, it seems like no matter what decade you look at, there was something that was going to kill us all. From Ebola to global warming to who the hell knows what. Somehow we've managed to keep going. So every once in a while, especially heading into a weekend, maybe we should just all learn to, in the words of Jackson Brown, 
Take it easy. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. The sound of your own wheels drive you crazy.